sinful people. Chapters 2 and 3, he points out it's not just the world out there that's sinful, it's also you Jews. You Jews are just as condemned as the Gentiles are. We are all condemned and under the wrath of God because of our sin. So that's the opening words. Chapter 4 then provides us the hope. There is salvation. God has provided salvation God has given us salvation by our faith in Him, by the work of Jesus Christ. There is a salvation. There is a remedy and a cure for our sinfulness. Chapters 4 through 8 tells us that the the gospel, the good news that is applied to our lives, brings us complete and total salvation all the way up to the place of glory. And chapters 9 through 11 tells us how God has imparted that salvation by choosing us, by placing His hand upon us. He has chosen us in Christ Jesus even before the world began. And and it's not just ethnic Jews. It's not just Jews who, who have Jewish blood can trace their lineage back to Abraham. It is even to us. So chapters 12 then exhorts us how to live in light of this great salvation. Present ourselves to God. We live under the authority of civil government. We accept those who, who see things differently than we do without, without fighting and disputing with them over every minor little issue. And then the summation, the conclusion. You can have hope. There is hope. All is not despair and gloom. All is not coming undone. All is not lost. The bottom is not falling out. And even if there is, it doesn't matter. We have hope. This is what Paul wants you to see and what I want to remind you of. This morning, so we begin, and let's, let's begin, first of all, by, by defining the word hope. What, is, what does it mean to say that we hope? We use that word quite a bit in our language, don't we? We, we throw it around. You're sitting there thinking, I hope he's done by 11 o'clock so I can enjoy my day. I hope that McDonald's actually has the sandwich that I want to buy for lunch today. I hope the weather holds out so that we can enjoy our picnic tomorrow. We, we use this word in a lot of ways. Merriam-Webster defines hope as to, to cherish a desire with anticipation or to want something to happen to be true. You know, I think about that and I think that's really what hope has kind of been reduced to in our vernacular in our vocabulary it's it's something that we want to happen we want something to be true it's it's little more than than just something that i that i would like to see or kind of hope to see i hope the eagles win the super bowl this year wouldn't that be great and so Next week, I'm going to hope so much that they're going to win the Super Bowl that I'm going to go home from church and turn on the game and fall asleep right on the couch. I hope that I can get things done tomorrow. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to make a big effort or agenda. I'm not going to set my alarm clock for the crack of 3.30 or whatever, but if I get around to it, I'm probably going to enjoy my cup of coffee more than you know, just pouring it down my throat and hopefully it wakes me up. 
I'll take advantage of this last holiday weekend. But I, but I hope I get things done tomorrow. But call me at 8 or 9 o'clock. It may not be. You see, that, that's kind of what hope is, right? That's kind of what well, I would like. I really want. I, I think that would be neat. But perhaps, though, Merriam-Webster is more accurate with the definition they define as an archaic definition of hope. Under that main first reading that I read to you there, that hope is, is to want something to happen or be true, they put this as number two or three. They said, hope is an archaic definition is this. It is one word. Trust. Trust. I saw that and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe that is what we're missing, and maybe that is what we're getting away from when we, when we cheapen this word hope, because hope used to be more than just, well, I'd really like for something to happen. It used to be trust, a trust that something will be fulfilled, an expectation that something will be accomplished. I think this is more in line with what scriptures teach us about hope. The Lexham Bible Dictionary defines hope this way. They say, hope is the confidence that by integrating God's redemptive acts in the past with trusting human responses in the present, the faithful will experience the fullness of God's goodness both in the present and in the future. Do you see those things there that they say that by integrating God's redemptive acts in the past, by reminding ourselves, by, by bringing into our lives the fact of what God has done in the past. And then by responding in the present, responding in the here and now, by looking to God in the here and now and say, I trust you, I believe you. Hope is realizing that one day we will experience the fullness of God's goodness. Hope is based on what God has done in the past and our reaction to Him in the present. They go on, they say this, biblical faith rests on the trustworthiness of God to keep His promises. The biblical view of hope is thus significantly different from that found in ancient Greek philosophies. The Greek recognized that human beings express hope by nature. However, this kind of hope reflects both good and bad experiences. So in other words, when someone tells you, hey, I'm going to be at your house tomorrow at 10 o'clock, your experience tells you whether or not you're actually going to sit at home and wait for them. Because they've told you they were going to be there Friday and Saturday and Thursday and Wednesday and last Monday at 10 o'clock. And they'd never showed up. Or it tells you, hey, uh, based on that person, if he tells me 10 o'clock, I'd better be ready at 845 because they're going to be there. Well, it's close to 10. I mean, it's an hour and 15 away. Close. They say this biblical hope avoids its subjectivity by being founded on something 
It provides a sufficient basis for confidence in its fulfillment. God and His redemptive acts as they culminate in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, hope is based on something that is real and solid. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary states it this way. They say, hope is a trustful expectation, particularly with reference to the fulfillment of God's promises. Biblical hope is the anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. More specifically, hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation. In what God will do in the future. They say this contrasts to the world's definition of hope as a feeling that what is wanted will happen. Again, that's what the world says. I hope this is what I want. This is what I desire. But biblical hope says I know what God has done. And because what God has done in the past, I know He will work in my life. One more from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Christian hope is securely based upon the words and actions of God. The promises of God have proven to be dependable. The resurrection of Jesus becomes the ultimate basis for hope. Since God has already overcome death through Christ, the Christian can live with confidence in the presence. No matter how dark the present age seems, the Christian has seen the light to come. People need to hope, and hope placed in the personal promise of God is secure. This secure hope is full of social significance, however, freeing one from bondage to materialism and its natural selfishness. Christian hope offers security for the future, loving involvement in sharing for the present. Do you see the point that these definitions are making? It's more than just merely saying, I want something. I really wish something would happen in my life. It is security. It is a security based on God, knowing that He is working all things for our good and for His glory. It is what anchors us in times of trial, trouble, difficulty, hardship, persecution. On and on we go. We know that God is in control and He is moving and working in our lives. And that is so much greater than just saying, really like for something to work out. It is secure confidence in God. Paul says these words in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter one, he said, Indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death. But it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul is explaining the, the dire situation he was in, and he thought he was going to die. But notice what he said, God delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us, and on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. That's why Paul says, you want to go travel the world and preach the gospel? It's fine, I'm good. 
I know that God has delivered me in the past. He is going to deliver me today. And one day he will ultimately deliver me from the trouble of this world. That's why I can go. Security and confidence knowing God is on my life. It says this in 1 Timothy 4, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe my hope is not found in me, but I strive because I know that God has saved in the past and He will save in the present and He will save in the future. Peter said through him, referring to Christ, we are believers in God who raised Him from the dead, who raised Christ from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. My hope is in God because His power resurrected Christ from the dead. Therefore, it is secure confidence in Him. You see, true hope, again, separates it separates, it separates from you saying, I hope I can do something, and you know you can't, or you'd like to if things work out. It is a secure confidence knowing that God is who He said He is, and that God will do what He said He will do. If we know what true hope is, and it's no wonder that Paul Paul calls God what he does here in Romans 15, verse 13, my second point, which is God is the God of hope. God is the God of hope. Not the God of a perhaps or God of maybe or a God of if things work out right, or if the fortunes hold up, or, or if the weather is good. But no, He is the God of a firm, reliable assurance. He is the God of a firm confidence because of who He is and what He has done. Paul says there in verse 13, May the God... The God of hope fill you. May the, may the God of hope fill your life. Again, we go back to what I mentioned. This paragraph in verses 7 through 12 is, is the summation of the letter of the Gentiles. As the New American Commentary states, it highlights the overall theme of the letter, the inclusion of the Gentiles within the promises of God to His people. Inclusion of the Gentiles. We didn't read verse 7, but look at where verse 7 says. It says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has, has welcomed you. Paul writes that he is summing up what he has written in chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, verse 6. Which is this, we should not be judging those who are, not, who are following Christ in a little bit different way than what we are. Paul talks about in chapter 14 that there are some who will eat anything. They don't care. You put a steak in front of them, they're going to eat it. They don't care where it came from. 
But yet others are so worried about eating food offered to idols that they eat only vegetables. They forego the meat. They, they don't want to, to be involved in, in partaking of a, of a piece of meat that might have been offered to idols. He says some of them observe the Sabbath day. They observe holy days in Judaism. While others believe that Christ is our Sabbath rest. And we do what we want to and we don't regard one day as any better than the other. And Paul says we should not be judgmental. We should not ridicule them. We should not cast them down. Instead, we should accept them and understand what he states in Romans 14 verse 12 that each of us will give an account of himself to God. All right, when you stand before God, God's not going to ask you, well, what did Matt do? What did Mary do? Why didn't you? What about them? No, God's going to look at you and he's going to say, what about you? What about your life? And so instead of judging, instead of casting down and destroying, instead of saying, no, you're not a part because you do things a little bit different than I do. We welcome them. We deal with each other. We work to build each other up. We include each other as part of the family of God. And I'm not talking about heresy, but I'm just talking about ways of living the Christian life. And the reason we do that is because of what Christ has done for us. Paul says, accept me, welcome me, make me a part of your family, even though we don't see eye to eye on every little thing. And the reason you should is because of what Christ has done for you. So what has Christ done for us? Well, first, verse 8 of Romans 15, Paul says, I tell you, Christ became a, circum a servant to the circumcised. Christ became a servant to the Jews. To show them that God is truthful, that God is reliable. And then to confirm the promises that he has given to the patriarchs. The reason Christ came was to show the Jewish people that he was a God unlike any other gods that are out there. He was the one true living God. And that God was keeping his word to Abraham as we talked about through the majority of the spring and to Isaac and Jacob that we're going to see here beginning next week. God is keeping his word to them. God has shown himself through Christ that he is true and trustworthy and reliable. Verse 9 though tells us it's not the Jews only. So the Jews see the truthfulness of God, it confirms the promises that they have been holding on to throughout the centuries. Verse 9, also in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. So the coming of Christ is not just for the Jews only, but for Jew and Gentile. Then Paul backs it up with four different references. 2 Samuel 22, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, Isaiah 11. He begins here in verse 9. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. 
even him who rises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles hope. So again, if you ask the question, why does Paul need to say four different times that the Gentiles are going to worship God, Paul is trying to emphasize his point. Just like you do to your child, I told you before, I tell you again, stop what you're doing. And do you get the point here? Paul is wanting to get it through your head. Even though you're not a Jew, Christ has welcomed you into his plan of salvation. Christ has included you. Now Paul says this, this is proof. This is proof that God has kept his word. That God has done what he said he will do. That God has been faithful. If you're here and you've sung those songs about God's mercy being more than your sins, you've sung that song about your hope being more or being based on Jesus' blood and righteousness, guess what? You are a recipient of the faithfulness of God. You have seen the goodness of God. You have seen the mercy of God. And God has shown himself faithful to you. Because of that, you have a real and genuine hope. You have a real and genuine assurance. You need to know that if God has saved you, he is going to keep you. He is going to provide for you. He is going to work in your life. He is going to heal. He is going to meet your needs. He is going to take care of you. So go ahead and leave church this afternoon. Go to Turkey Hill. Buy that lottery ticket if you want. The odds of winning either the Powerball or Mega Millions are 1 in 292.2 million. 1 in 302.5 million. Put your hope in it. I mean, you've probably been there like I have, right? All I want is a cup of coffee because I know it's going to be a long day. I might as well get something in me. That poor guy is standing there thinking he's got all the numbers figured out. And you're like, sir, can I just buy my coffee? They're so convinced that it's going to be hope. Skip next Sunday. Enter your child in some kind of traveling sports tournament. All in the hopes that they're going to be a professional athlete. 2012, the NCAA survey found that only 0.03% of high school basketball players, 0.1% of high school hockey players, and 0.04% of high school soccer players will play professionally at any level. The odds of becoming a professional baseball player are slightly higher, but still only 0.4% of high school players go pro. Skip, go, enter your child, get them all that training. Go to Sands Casino in Bethlehem, the odds of getting a royal flush. 
The first hand of poker, just 649,739 to 1. I mean, I guess that's better odds, but good luck with that. But again, go to God and see if God will do what Asaph said he would do in Psalm 73, verse 23 and 24. And Asaph wrote, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Go to God and say, Will you lead and guide and watch over and care and protect my life? Guess what the odds are? The odds are God will do it every single time. Every single time. There will never, ever, ever be a time where God will say, not today, not right now. No, the mesh you're in is too deep. No, the bridge you have crossed is way too far. That's why Paul says he is the God of hope. The God that you can place your trust and faith and confidence in. During the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, German pastor Paul Gerhard and his family were forced to flee from their home. One night they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid. His wife broke down, cried openly in despair. Gerhard began to comfort her by reminding her of Scripture promises about God's provision and keeping. Then going out to the garden to be alone, he too broke down and wept. It felt like they had been in their darkest hour. Soon afterwards, Gerhard felt the burden lifted and he sensed anew the Lord's presence. He took his pen, wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many. Word says this, give to the winds I fear hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and accounts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time. So shall the night soon end in joyous day. It's often in our darkest times that God makes his presence known most clearly. He uses our suffering and troubles to show us He is our only source of strength. And when we see this truth, like Pastor Gerhardt, we receive new hope. If you're here this morning and you're facing a a great trial, a great burden, great heaviness in your life, take heart, put yourself in the hands of God, wait for His timing. The hope that God provides is sure and steadfast. And it's will keep you. God is the God of hope. Let's finally, finally think quickly about what this God of hope will do. What does this God of hope do? We see that God is the God that we serve is the one we can put our hope in. And we see that and we come to Him and we place our hopes in Him. We notice what this God of hope will do for us. Again, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you Fill you with all joy and peace and believing. The God of hope wants to fill you with joy. 
with joy. I found His grace is all complete. It supplies my every need. While I sit and learn at Jesus' feet, I am free. Yes, free indeed. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And joy is not a happy feeling. I mean, yeah, I'm going to be happy. And I go home and I realize there's one piece of chocolate cake waiting with my name on it. I wish there was. I don't think there is. Joy is something that says, even though, even though my world is coming undone, God is on my side. And he has forgiven me. And my faith is placed in it. God will give us with joy, and not only joy, but also, also peace. Paul says it's a peace that passes all understanding. That's why people look at us and say, your life is falling apart. Why are you sitting there acting like nothing is happening? Don't you realize it's time to panic? And you're like, why? My faith is in God. My hope is in God. And God has filled me with joy and peace as I trust in Him. And notice what he says here, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit, We don't do it around here much, but it's a good thing because I don't want us to, but you might have been in a church, a large church, or some kind of concert. Worship leader, the person that's singing is up there on stage and they're jumping around and clapping their hands and saying, oh man, ain't you excited? Don't you feel God? Ain't he here? And all this other good stuff. And No, they're trying to get the crowd involved and try to get it going, but when you're away from the crowd and you're all alone, it's not you that's going to do the work. It's the God who lives in you, the power of His Holy Spirit inside of you. It fills you with this hope. It fills you with this peace. That's why I get worried when you when people walk around and they say, I, I just, I'm watching the news and I'm so angry and I'm so filled with rage. And I think, wait a second, I thought your hope was in God. Why are you putting your hope in those politicians? They're going to let you down. I don't care who they are. So I can't ever understand. And, and when people are, are just so worried. Oh no, the stock market's crashing. My world is falling apart. Yes, I know that maybe your IRA is dependent on it and you want to live and, and have a good life, but, but our ultimate hope is not going to be found in Wall Street. It's going to be found in a God who says, I watch every bird and I provide for them. I take care of every little flower that's out there. Can I not take care of you? why, as we read there in Psalm 20, it's not in my chariot, it's not in my horse, it's in God that I trust. Paul says, the power of the Holy Spirit, you abound in hope. You abound in hope. Yeah, the Gestapo police are outside watching and checking to see who all's coming in to worship here. That's okay, all they can do is shoot us. It won't hurt that long, trust me. I didn't, well, don't trust me. I've never been shot. But the fact of the matter is, 
Our life is secure in Christ. There's no FBI or CIA or secret police or whatever that can ever take that away from me. The story of Martin Luther, great German reformer during a very difficult time in his life, carrying many burdens and fighting many battles. The story is told he was usually a jolly, smiling person. But he found himself in a state of depression and a funk and worried about all these things that he was going through. His wife endured his sour attitude for many days, but one day she just got fed of it with him, so she met him at the door wearing a black morning dress. Martin Luther assumed somebody had died, and he asked her, who died? His wife Catherine looked at him and said, God died. Luther said, you foolish thing, why do you say that? Why this foolishness? It's true, she persisted, God must have died. Or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. Stories told that her therapy worked and Martin Luther snapped out of his depression. Sometimes I wonder, wonder, see Christians and they say, God surely must have died the way we're acting. No, it's not that God is dead, it's that we're putting our hope in, in something else putting our faith in something else. I mean, that person told me surely that this was going to happen and it didn't happen. So, so we act like the world is coming to an end. I don't know how true, I mean, the story, I guess it's true. Who knows if it happened during this time frame or not, but it was that same Martin Luther who wrote these words. He said, no, this world, the devil feels should filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word will fail Him. This world the devil's field cannot take away my faith and hope in God. Because I know, I know whom I have believed. And then he said that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them. Abideth the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sighted. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. If you don't recognize those words are from that great hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. My question to you this morning, my question to myself this morning, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where are you placing your confidence? Where are you placing your trust? Again, go back to Romans and look at it. And Paul is telling us you, and I imagine that probably includes just about everyone. Maybe there's one or two of you. But every single one of us, God said four times we are going to be included as Gentiles into his great plan of redemption. And guess what? Here we are. 
And if God said that, way back when through Isaiah and David and Samuel and whoever else, if God said that, why don't we believe that God will keep the rest of His Word true? That God will bring about His plan and His purposes in our life. This is the story because of what God has done. What God has done on Calvary 2,000 years ago. What God did in my life in 1990 as a 13-year-old boy and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. God is still going to do in my life. Here we are, 2022. He is faithful. He is a God of hope. He is a God of a sure and steady foundation. And so I ask you these questions. What are you basing your hope on? Is it on your strength, your ability, your power? It's going to fail. Why are you here this morning saying, yeah, I know God saved me from my sins, but I just, I just don't know if God's going to take care of me because of who's in the White House, really? You don't think God can watch over us, even if it is a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent or whatever? I don't know if God can watch over me. I mean, they've been talking about shutting down my job for 10 years, and I think it's getting serious. You don't think God can take care of you? Somehow don't think God's promises are sure they are. And the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 6, this hope is an anchor. It's an anchor for our souls. It keeps us. Because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Who knows what's going to happen in the future in our country. We worry. We pray almost every Tuesday for God to work and bring revival. But you know what? We know that God's in control. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know which one of you is going to call me and say, hey, something really bad has happened. But we know that God's in control. I don't know. Church board may come and say we're flat out of money, but you know what? God's still on the throne. God will be on the throne when we sign this building over to whoever takes over. God will be on the throne. And we're not out of money, but at the same time, if you already put your check in the envelope, we're not giving it back. There's no refunds. So <laughs> think about it. And place your hope in God. He is the God of hope, and He wants to fill you with joy and peace and cause you to abound in hope, not through your own power, your own efforts, but through the power of His Holy Spirit living in you. Even even if you're in a martyr's chopping block and they kill you. That's the worst they can do. This mortal life they kill. That's, that's the worst that can happen because I'm going to be in the presence of God immediately. And it's all going to be over. Place your hope in God. This is the first Sunday of the month. Worship team, why don't you guys come? and Ushers, if you want to get ready, this is... Communion Sunday, of course. Why do we do this? Why do we partake?
We do because we remember. We remember what God has done. We look back and we say, you know what? There on the cross, my sins, my sins not in part, but the whole were nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. We remember. We remember a broken body, blood-stained hill called Calvary. We remember that. Because that happened there, And the old rugged cross, we know. We know that God is going to keep us through this life. If you're here this morning and you're partaking of communion and saying, I I remember the work that you have done, O Lord. There is no reason for you to walk outside of this building and to be overcome with despair sorrow and anguish and wondering if God is ever going to work in your life. This time reminds us He is. He is faithful. He is good. And He is working all things for our good and for His glory. Amen. Why don't you come, ushers, let's receive communion here. So let me go ahead, ladies.